0: Please turn with me to the first epistle of John. We will read the first chapter and the first two, verse, first two verses of chapter 2. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 2. And then we read God's holy word, that which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. Life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. This is the message which we have heard from Him and declare to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His Word is not in us. My little children, these things I wrote, these things I write to you, so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. So far the reading of the Word of God. The text for the sermon is taken from the portion we read, the verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2, and we will, re- will read these verses again. The first two verses of chapter 2, where we read the text of the sermon My little children, these things I write to you, so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He Himself is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Beloved congregation, when I ask you, children, what is most important for you to know in life, then I I think you very well know the answer. Most important to know in life is that that you have a new heart. Or maybe someone else says, most important to know in life is that, that my sins are forgiven. Or that I I know the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. And you're right. Well, this afternoon we want to hear about this more. So if you say that this is most important of life, then I may expect that each one of you will pay close attention to what will be said about the most important thing in life and we hope to hear about the seriousness of sin and about jesus christ who is able and willing to forgive our sins we could say that this is about the heart of the gospel the heart of the gospel that's also the theme of the sermon and we will pay attention to the need for the gospel secondly the content of the gospel, and thirdly, the scope of the gospel, the heart of the gospel, the need for the gospel, the content of the gospel, and the scope of the gospel. The epistle we are studying this afternoon is from the same Apostle John as, we, as who wrote the gospel which is called after his name and who also received revelations from Jesus Christ in his life when he was in exile on the island Patmos. John was one of the three who was privileged, one of the three disciples who was privileged to belong to Jesus' most intimate disciples. He witnessed the transfiguration on Mount Tabor. John was beheld, has beheld the glory of Jesus He is already advanced in years when he writes this letter. For many years, he has served the churches in Asia Minor, especially Ephesus. But John has great concern about the churches in this region. He hears about doctrines which deviate from the truth which Christ has taught him, the apostolic truth which he has preached in in those churches. And in a way, John is not surprised that heresies were spread and, and that they also crept into the churches he served. Did Paul not say at his departure, when he, he left departed from Ephesus, that grievous wolves would come among them, not sparing the flock? And yet this does not lead John to passivity, as if nothing can be done to stop the influence of false teachers. No, he writes to the churches providing an antidote to false teaching. And what's an appropriate antidote? The preaching of the gospel about the Lord Jesus Christ. And as it were, he he reminds his audience of the gospel he has preached to them. And the way he starts the epistle reminds us of his gospel. In the beginning was the word. And the first words of his epistle are that with was from the beginning. And then he tells them again that Jesus Christ is light, and that God is light, and that all his people who live in communion with him have no communion with the darkness. He calls them to live according to the gospel they first believed. And He addresses His audience lovingly. He says to the true believers, My little children. And we should hear tender care in this address. My little children, my dear children. He addresses them like a father speaks to his children. We find this way of addressing more often in Scripture. For instance, Paul, to the Corinthians, he calls them his beloved sons. And in Galatians 4 verse 19, he calls the congregation his little children. He has begotten them through the gospel. So with affectionate concern, he writes to the congregants. And what does he say to them? These things I write unto you, that you may not sin. What did he write? Well, he refers to what he just wrote as an antidote to false teaching. He writes about living in communion with God through Christ and about the forgiveness of sin. And, and some people are down, downplaying sin. And, and others say that after regeneration, sin is not a big deal anymore. Since All sins are forgiven, period. Some people say that sins should not bother us anymore and find license to continue to sin. If forgiveness is freely available... We can go on sinning so that grace may increase. That's a heresy that was also pointed out by Paul in Romans 6 verse 1. But John makes clear that the grace of the forgiveness of sins cannot be a license to continue in sin. And therefore, John says in our text, These things I write unto you that you may not sin." And I can imagine that you will say, well, I understand John's concern. I mean, we know that we all are sinners. And that even after regeneration, no one will be without sin in this lifetime. Sin cleaves to us. And I think that no one of us will state that he or she does not sin anymore. Though we all agree on this, I'm not sure whether we all act accordingly. What do I mean? Well, we all agree that we are sinners. But what's our conduct? Our disposition toward sin. Do we also agree with John that sin should never be accepted by us. Sin is darkness, and darkness does not fit with light. John says in verse 5, God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. Why not? Because God hates sin. Sin is rebellion against God. Sin is enmity against God. And as light and darkness never go together… So, God and sin are incompatible. And that brings us to the urgent question about our disposition towards sin. Do you and I hate sin? Because God hates sin? Or have we accepted certain sins? as a part of our life. And we do certain sins. And subconsciously, we view sin as a part of how we are built. Like all other people, we are sinners. And since everyone commits sin, we are inclined to accept this as a license to sin. Reminds me of a question, I, a conversation I have with, with catechism students every year when we discuss our responsibility towards God. And, and I usually single out, it's not so nice, but I single out a student and point to his or her personal sins. And then most of the times a student starts to, to defend himself by saying that we all are Sinners and we understand that but that clearly shows our natural inclination to generalize sin we have no problem with talking about sin as long as it does not become too personal we can feel comforted by the idea that we are not the only sinner and meanwhile we are neutralizing our personal our personal sins We know so well in the Free Reformed Church that we are sinners. But to experience the abomination of sin is a work of the Holy Spirit. A work which the Spirit performs not only once, but ceaselessly as long as we live in this dispensation. And the question to you and me is: What leads the apostles' admonition to to what? And this is not, but a, a, this is not a word of, of from me, but this is God's word, a word that the apostle John wrote under the guidance of the Spirit. God's word is inspired, and God says to you and to me: These things I write unto you. That. You may not sin. That you may not sin. And we need to let this admonition sink into our minds and hearts. And we do not differ from those who minimize the seriousness of sin if we say that, yeah, we all are sinners, but are not grieved because of this. That's the case if we do not know of struggling with sin, if we do not know of that hard work of mortifying our indwelling sin, if we don't know of dying to self, and instead we cherish bosom sins, we don't repent from sin to God, or we cheapen grace by the reasoning that, yeah, well, yeah, at the end of the day, there is forgiveness with the Lord anyway. Anyway if we confess our sins, or we reason that we cannot help that we are sinners. We are born in brokenness, as if God designed us to sin. God does not want you to do any sin, and every sinful thought is rebellion against God. Some so-called Christians separate the Lord's Day from from the other days of the week. One day of the week we are a Christian, but the other day we live according to the liking of our deceitful heart. And then the problem of sin has never become a serious problem for us, since every Sunday we hear about the solution which is offered in Jesus Christ. When When we profess to believe in Christ, then all is well. Well, in this way, we deceive ourselves for eternity. God wants us to realize that even the slightest sin makes us guilty before God. And every form of unbelief, disobedience, and lack of love, no matter to what measure, is sin. And God wants us not to sin. God wants us to live holy, fully committed to Him. We should not ask the question what a Christian is allowed to do in this world. Rather, the question should be what God wants me to do. And the answer is clear, that you may not sin. So our priori- priority should be, what can I do to stay far from sin and temptation?" That question becomes increasingly important in the life of a believer. Is that also your question? Because in spiritual life, sin bothers us increasingly. And you learn yourself to be a sinner more and more. And you find so many sins remaining in your heart and you struggle with them. And you take the apostles admonishment seriously my little children these things i write unto you that you may not sin and to say no to sin is hard work but it is work that god god's word calls us to and by this the spirit teaches us to have a low view of self and a high view of christ You discover time and again, without the Lord, I can do nothing. Nothing that that can please the Lord. Nothing that will glorify His name. And in this way, the Lord exalts His work of grace in our lives. We should not forget that, that God has a lawsuit against us. That's the language of this letter, of this epistle. Through Jesus Christ, He will judge the world. And I will. it will not last long till Jesus comes again with the clouds to judge the living and the dead. We just confessed. Why does He come to judge? Why does God have a lawsuit with His world? Because we have turned our back on our Maker. We went astray. God has created us to glorify Him. And boys and girls, your parents have taught you so, didn't they? What is the chief and highest end of man? Man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy Him forever. And what happens if we do not? Then we are guilty before God. And God does not say, well, if mankind does not not obey me, then I will shuffle the world away and start a new one. No, no. God demands our obedience. And God cannot change His holy demands. He wants His creation back. He wants you back. And John reminds his readers of God's lawsuits. God's law is the standard. And all who deviate from God's holy will, from God's holy law, will be condemned. That's the... Appalling reality for all those who do not meet God's demand. These things I write unto you that you may not sin. But John does not stop here, as we will see in our second point, the content of the gospel. No, the apostle has heard, seen, and believed the gospel of Jesus Christ, And then we hear about the the rich gospel which he proclaims to his guilty audience again. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. As it were, John looks around in the courtroom. And there we stand as the accused party in the dock, And we may know that all the accusations are, are true. We, we know that. We are guilty before God. But we have an advocate. We have someone who will help us in our desperate need. Someone who will be, the, be counsel for our defense. And our English word advocate is based on the Latin, the Latin advocatus, which is in return response to the Greek word parakletos. And that Greek word literally means one called alongside to help. Jesus Christ is our helper, called alongside to help us. He is the, says John, the righteous one. He is the righteous one in our stead. He is our advocate. Paul also speaks of Jesus as the one who is at God's right hand and makes intercessions for his church day and night, Romans 8, 34. He is the great intercessor. He is called alongside to help, to make intercession for us. And John says we have an Advocate with the Father. He is with the Father in heaven. There He is as the righteous and as the propitiation for our sins, says John in verse 2. That's how the Lord Jesus is in heaven right now. Right now. As the righteous and as the propitiation. What does it mean? What does it mean that Jesus is the righteous? Well, it means that He is without sin. He he is our opposite. What we lack is found with Him. With Him is no iniquity. And He perfectly obeys God's holy demands. And as you know, He came into this world as the righteous. Though He was in all things like us, yet He was without sin. He justly said... Which of you convinces me of sin? And no one was able to answer that question. And we hear even out of the mouth of Pilate who condemned the Lord Jesus, I find no fault in this man. He was the righteous. That was not the simple conclusion of men, but that is what he is according to God's holy law, God's standards. He perfectly obeyed God and fulfilled the law of God. And he did so, not for himself, but as the great mediator for sinners. In our stead, he fulfilled the law so that we can live in communion with God forever. And therefore, he also paid the penalty in our stead. The righteous was burdened with the sins of the world. The righteous was made unrighteous, and the innocent was made guilty. Scripture says that God has made Him to be sin. Well, He made to be sin. He came before God's tribunal when He was hung on the cross, and God poured out His wrath upon His Son. And there Christ shed His blood when the nails of God's judgments were driven through His hands and feet. He made propitiation, atonement for our sins. He was true man. He is true man and true God. And therefore, He can intercede for us. And His blood cleanses us from all sin. The blood of thousands of goats and sheep could not cleanse a sinner from only one sin. But the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all our sins. And with His blood, He made redemption for us. And now He is with the Father in heaven. He is the Christ, the anointed of the Father, to be our only high priest, eternal king and chief prophet. After He died on the cross, He he was buried. But He rose from the dead and sits at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for His church. He ceaselessly prays for His church. As an advocate of His church, He stands between God and us, with the scars in, in his, uh, of his wounds before God. And the author of the epistle to the Hebrews says in chapter 7, verse 25, "Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost, that come unto God by him, seeing he ever lives to make intercession for them. He saves those who come to God. Do you come to God? with the burden of your sin? Do you confess your sins before the Lord brokenhearted? Do you sorrow over your sin? Do you want to get rid of your sky-high debt before God? How? I cannot stand before God and live. No, but we have an advocate, an advocate with the Father He is called alongside to help. And you may plead Christ's finished work. You may plead Christ's shed blood, the blood of the Lamb which satisfied God. Jesus Christ offers Himself under the preaching of His Word to you as the advocate who is able and willing to make intercession for you. No, you're not worthy of it. You can offer nothing but sin and guilt, but that's what this advocate already counts on. And for that reason, the church has an advocate. All God, church has an advocate with the Father, and we may call him alongside for our help. He is even honored if we lay all our sin and guilt upon him. Who is the righteous? All those who come to Him will be helped by Him. And no doubt, God will accept you because He has accepted the finished work of His Son. And if not, Christ would not have been ascended into heaven. If Christ's sacrifice was not complete, then the Father would not have raised Him from the dead and not taken Him up into heaven. But since the Father is fully satisfied with the sacrifice of His Son, sinners may come to the throne of grace to receive forgiveness of sin and eternal life. But you need to know that the text has even a deeper and richer meaning if we realize who is calling Jesus Christ the righteous alongside to help. So far we saw the blessing of of us being allowed to, to call Jesus Christ alongside to help us as our advocate. But consider for a moment. Who calls Jesus to be an advocate of His people? Ultimately, the Father. God has sent His beloved Son into this world. He is the righteous... He is the propitiation for our sins, since God has called and appointed Him. And for this reason, we can be reconciled to God. As it were, when we go to the throne of grace, then God calls His Son to intercede on our behalf. God asks Christ to be the advocate of His people since in Jesus Christ God is well pleased. Oh, you will never be disappointed when you plead Christ's finished work, since God has called Him alongside to help, to make intercession for us. Do you know Him as your advocate? There's free access to Him. He's called alongside by the Father to make intercession for us. He is an advocate for guilty sinners. You may freely hide behind his blood. Behind his blood, you are safe. And then God looks upon you and sees no sin anymore when you grow in spiritual life, you will increasingly need Jesus Christ as your advocate. And you realize that you cannot live without His constant work of intercession. If any man sin, by the Spirit's exposing work, you confess, this is about me. And you do not say it lightly as a shallow reasoning. Yeah, of course, we all are sinners but this is experiential knowledge. If any man sin, yes, I do. Sin I sin every day, and it burdens me. But what a miracle that he is an advocate for such a sinner. Oh, may you look to him by faith, Jesus Christ is the only one you need. You need Him, and you need Him completely. But let us, in the third place, pay attention to the scope of this gospel. For three, for verse two, we read, and He Himself is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only but also for the whole world. Allow me to say a few things more about Jesus Christ, the propitiation for our sins. John does not say that Jesus forgives our sins. That's also true. But this has a deeper meaning. Jesus is the propitiation in person. This is about who Jesus is and what He does. If you are in Christ by faith, your sins are forgiven since He is the propitiation for our sins. That's the result of His atoning work. He has satisfied God's justice. And it means that there is no sin which cannot be forgiven. Do you hear that? There is no sin that cannot be forgiven. No one can state, but my sins are too many. Or my sins are too abominable. To be, to, be, to be forgiven. No, all the sins and guilt of His people are swallowed when Christ died on the cross. And the blood covers all kinds of sins. The blood covers an uncountable number of sins. But maybe you say, Pastor, you have no idea How often I consciously sinned against God's law and even worse, against His love. I can't imagine God would be gracious to me for the merit of His Son. Well, I agree that we cannot comprehend this miracle, but God does not demand you to understand this miracle, but to believe. Do you trust Him? Who was willing to die in the stead of sinners who deserve eternal death? If we truly trust Him, then stop reasoning. Then you cannot but lay your hand on His Word, as it were, and lay your hand on Christ, who is the propitiation for our sins in person. He is present tense. He was yesterday. He is today. And He will be so tomorrow for the sins you will commit tomorrow. What a miracle of grace. He is our propitiation today, and He will also be so for our future sins. May that comfort you. Child of God who so easily goes astray and who sometimes still willingly, or must I say often, willingly sin against God's commandments. At times you feel to be such a fool. So many temptations lead you to sin. Your conscience accuses you and you feel yourself to be unworthy of of, of every blessing. And yet Christ is still the propitiation for our sins. And He will never not be our propitiation. Therefore, congregation, salvation is secure in Christ. Even our daily sins do not cut us off from access to God. Also for me, is that your question? Do you know an answer to this question, whether Jesus Christ is also the propitiation for your sins? Maybe you remember from the beginning of the sermon that John wrote to believers, and he calls them, my little children, my dear children. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. You say, but I don't know whether I belong to those who can be called true believers. John widens the scope of the riches of the gospel because when he comes to Christ's propitiation, he states, "And and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. the whole world. No, that does not mean that ultimately it does no matter. It does not matter who believes in this lifetime. At the end of the history, everyone will be saved because Christ is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. That's a lie. And unfortunately, there are so-called gospel that teaches this. God is so good and God is so merciful that He, for Christ's sake, will forgive the sins of everyone. At the end of the history, no, only in the way of regeneration, repentance, and faith, we can can come to the true knowledge of Christ. And Scripture clearly teaches us that without knowing Christ as our personal Savior and mediator, we cannot be saved, that you cannot be saved. You need to know Him. But then what does John mean by the world? Well, the world is the place where where God's salvation is manifested. God's love goes out to the world. The world which is lost. And in this wicked world, God reveals salvation in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Since this world cannot be saved apart from Christ's finished work. And if the world, world is the place where God manifests His love, then this implies that no one needs to be excluded from Him who is the propitiation for our sins. The offer of free, ga- free grace goes to each and every one. And no one of us can say... I was under the preaching of Christ, but I'm I'm excluded from the offer of free grace. The forgiveness of sin is preached to us, and it is real, and it is attainable, because Christ came for the sins of the world, not for a particular period or place, not for a particular kind of people. No, the gospel of free grace is... For every generation and for the whole world, God so loved the world, do we read in John 3, 16. This also means that Christ, who is the propitiation for the sins of the world, is sufficient, is sufficient. That means nothing needs to be added. Never and nowhere. The Canons of the Lord states this to states this so aptly in the second head, Article 2, the death of the Son of God is the only and most perfect sacrifice and satisfaction for sin and is of infinite worth and value, abundantly sufficient to expiate, to atone the sins of the whole world. It is Satan's deceit to conclude that Christ is Peter and Paul's propitiation. But it cannot be yours. That's an abuse of God's love revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you dare to state that Christ is not a perfect Savior who can save you? Would you doubt the willingness while He admonishes you to come to Him with your sins? You're summoned to come to Him. And don't be a fool by refusing His offer, since this means that you refuse Christ Himself. We live in the last days. Seek Him while He can be found. Call upon His name. Come as an unworthy sinner and plead His mercy. Jesus Christ is willing to be the Savior and mediator of the chief of sinners. He is the advocate for sinners who deserves to be sent away. He is the propitiation for the sins of the world. The one who laid down His life for sinners, who suffered hellish agony in order to satisfy God's demands, says to you today, Here I am, here I am to save you. if you don't know Him as your advocate, if you don't know Him in this lifetime, then you will soon meet Him as your judge. And how will that be? If you harden your heart, then how will you be able to survive His judgment, His wrath, will be kindled upon you. And the wrath of the Son will be horrible. Why would you prefer such an end while He shows His endless love to you today? Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and ye perish from the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are they that put their trust in Him, Yes, it will be a blessed meeting for those who put their trust in Him. How precious will the day of days be for all true believers. Then we will meet Jesus Christ as our judge, who we got to know in this lifetime as our advocate. And the one we, we now ever The one who now ever pleads with the Father for us will be the one who will say, Come. You who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. He is our beloved. He is so precious. He is worthy to be honored and praised though we experience many trials and tribulations in this lifetime, though we fall into many sins, and though we cannot love and serve Him as we ought, my little children, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Come, dear fellow believer, Christ will bring His work to fruition. It will not last long. He hears our cry. And He knows of our plight and it pleases Him to be called alongside for help. And the Father always hears Him. Amen. Shall we pray? Lord, we just heard that precious gospel concerning the Lord Jesus Christ and Him crucified, the rock of salvation. Lord, may many of us, could it be, Each one of us flee for refuge. And to know Thee, Lord Jesus, as our anchor, the anchor of our soul. To know Thee as our advocate. Lord, we come to Thee as sinners, guilty and lost. We come to Thee, looking unto Thee. For Thou art the propitiation for our sins. Thou art the advocate with the Father. Though Thou make intercession for us, we pray. Will Thou, as the Good Shepherd, go before us, that we may hear Thy voice and follow Thee and live and die comforted only because of Thee, Lord Jesus Christ, and Thy finished work. Lord, will Thou so glorify Thy name. We humbly thank Thee for the many blessings which Thou hast bestowed upon us also in this afternoon. And as we exit this building and go back to our homes, Lord, will thou keep us from an unprepared and unreconciled death? And will thou hear us? For Jesus' sake alone. Amen.